Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Greetings and welcome to the War Room podcast. We're so pleased that you've joined us. Today, we welcome back two regular contributors to debut a new series for the podcast about, quote, great captains in military history. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Do we really need yet another examination of the great men and women who are admired as paragons of virtue and role models as leaders and military commanders? And in some respects, you're, of course, right. There are plenty of places where you can go to find tales of heroic wartime exploits and tactical and strategic savvy. But what we aim to do in this series is to draw out some of the broader contextual and historical details that shape these leaders, and then to examine the wide variety of characteristics, including their flaws and foibles, as well as their virtues, that great military leaders have exhibited across time and space. Because at the end of the day, there isn't a single, simple answer to the question, what makes a military leader great? So to kick this series off, we have Lynn Fullenkamp, who is a military historian and retired professor of national security studies at the U.S. Army War College, and Andrew Hill, who is the chair of strategic leadership at the U.S. Army War College and the War Room editor-in-chief. And fittingly, for the first episode in the series, they sat down to discuss one of the United States's first military heroes, George Washington. So let's go to their conversation now. Hello, I'm Andrew Hill, and I'm here again with Len Follenkamp. Welcome, Len. Andrew, good to be with you. We are starting a new podcast series here on War Room about great captains. And today we'll be discussing George Washington. You may have heard of him. He's on the quarter and the dollar bill in the United States, first president of the United States. But before we, we discuss George, Len, I thought it would be good for us to talk a little bit about this concept of great captains. What is a great captain? Ah, great captain. That's a good question. When this uh, idea of great captaincy started, I I had just started teaching on the faculty of the Army War College, and I had an office mate, Jay Jay Luvas, a a good Civil War historian, who was teaching a course called Ride with Great Captains. And in this course, uh, uh, Luvas would have the students do a diagnostic on various generals to look at their styles of generalship, the qualities or traits that made them great leaders, with the idea in mind that you could learn something from this that perhaps might be useful to one in in one's own career. And uh, so when Jay moved on, I inherited this course. And when I first started to teach it, I, I really wasn't sure what our objective was to be as, as, as far as trying to figure out what great captaincy was all about. But Ultimately, my, my idea came to be that generalship is a form of leadership that differs from leadership at the lower levels of command, and it's also different from but similar to leadership at the highest levels of political responsibility. Generalship, it's that high-level management leadership of forces designed to achieve political ends. And on one level, using something like the great man theory of history, you you would simply take a look at a leader and say, what traits did this leader have or evidence, and how did those traits make them successful? But, But mere traits alone don't really answer the question because it's the environment, it's the context. And so you have to sort of look at generalship over the ages. And 
And very shortly after I started teaching the course, I came across that great quote by Napoleon in his Maxims, where he talked about uh, if one would learn leadership, they had to study the campaigns of the great captains, men like uh, Hannibal, Caesar, uh, Gustavus Adolphus, uh, a Swedish prince from around uh, the 1600s, uh, Frederick the Great, especially Frederick the Great, and Napoleon, of course, who's talking uh, about studying the great captains is also talking about himself, and so we include him on that list. Uh, you know, Dwight Eisenhower said something similar to that, uh, to that observation of Napoleon in 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 an introductory letter that he wrote to the West Point Atlas of Military Wars, where Ike said that professional soldiers don't get much chance in a career to practice their profession, and so if they would hone their skills and learn their profession, the way they had to do it was, or the way they could do it was to simply look at or study the campaigns of others who had been successful. Not, not looking for tricks or things so that they could be clever, but looking for insights so that they could become wise. Wise in the way of the prosecution of uh, the, the use of force. So is identifying a great captain just as simple as looking at somebody who wins every battle, right? Like, oh, we're 16 and 0, right? We win every battle. Is that is that what makes a great captain? Because the fact that we're talking about George Washington today suggests that it, there's more to it, right, than just victory in battle. Yeah, battles are discrete events within the fabric of the larger co- contest, the larger war. And, and Washington is a great example that came to me when I got to thinking about how do we turn this great captain's thing into something that's useful for U.S. Army War College students who would take this elective? Because after all, these soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines who are going to go off and command our forces, they, they would benefit from a broad study of generalship uh, across all cultures and, and nationalities. But more specifically, they ought to know what the American way of war is like and what has made American leaders successful or less than successful over time. So, so I began to focus the course on the idea that we would study American generalship. And what better place to start than the man who lays the foundations for American generalship throughout the ages? George Washington is that man. Yes, George Washington is going to, as we'll see, not be successful in every endeavor. What's what makes Washington great is the fact that he's going to learn from his failures. He learns as much from failures as from success. And most importantly, Washington exhibits a quality absolutely essential to a learning mind, and that is the ability to change that mind, to change his views. When, he, when something's not working, it's to change and go in a different direction. And Washington will do that with his views on how the, the American war should be prosecuted. And as others who have studied Washington down through the ages have observed, it's not simply the fact that Washington would lose a battle, and he does lose a lot of them. He has only about three great, clear victories, and these aren't even battles. It's Trenton, Princeton, and Yorktown. Yorktown, But, but Yorktown is a siege, right. and Trenton is a raid. And Princeton is is hardly more than a skirmish. And then he loses a lot of battles, or at least has draws, but but he is not defeated. And, you know, I I say from time to time when talking about military events that outcome is no sure measure of the quality of the effort. Well, you have to sort of look at the ultimate outcome, I guess, 
to determine success or failure in generalship. But, but, we'll, but for example, in this series later on, we'll take a look at American generals Grant and Lee and make some comparisons and contrasts between their, their styles and their approaches to war. Can we say that Lee was a successful general even though he lost the war? He is successful at how he handles forces in various situations. He plays a losing hand very, very well. Getting back to Washington, Washington's going to do the same thing. I guess one of the most important things that Washington will do very early on is realize that he's playing a losing hand and has to change how he plays that hand. So when we look at Washington, uh, you, you start with the fact that Washington emerges from the colonial army. He serves in 1754 under the British against the French. In fact, some people believe, if you read Washington's biographies, that, that Washington actually started the French and Indian War when he led an attack on uh, some British forces. What, what Washington learns as a young man in that war is about war at a very low level. He has an opportunity to watch senior commanders. He's with Braddock at his great defeat out there in western Pennsylvania. But Washington leaves that war with this understanding, crude but, but uh, hard-earned understanding of war at a very basic level. And interestingly enough, uh, for years afterwards, Washington's aspiration was to be a colonel in the British Army. And of course, because he was a, a lowly American colonist, they, the British were not about to extend to him that honor. One wonders what would have happened had they done so. So when the War for Independence comes along, 17, in, the, in 1770s, 1775, uh, Washington's not there. He's not available for Lexington and Concord. But very shortly thereafter, when the Continental Congress goes looking for a leader, Washington shows up and extends, his, extends an offer to, to le lend his services to the cause. Uh, he shows up in uniform, by the way, when he does that to kind of score the point that, uh, you know, I'm the person who can do this. And so Washington is put in charge of the war under the Continental Congress. And, and this is the, sort of the very foundations of this notion that's, that military affairs in, in this American society that's going to emerge, American political society, society, will be subservient to civil authority. And one of the themes that comes through our study of Washington as you, as you watch him evolve as a general and a great leader is Washington is laying down the planks of what it means to be an officer in the American military system. Respect for civil authority, uh, the, the qualities and traits that he will exhibit as a commander. Uh, Washington was personally brave. And you know, courage is a very important quality for a leader to have. Physical courage, but also moral courage. The, the, the courage to decide, the willingness to accept responsibility. Uh, it helps to be intelligent. And when Washington was reasonably intelligent, uh, smart enough to know when he thought he was doing right or when he thought he was doing wrong. But he had to master a whole range of, of uh, skills. He had to be his own intelligence officer. He had to be his own commissary officer, his own quartermaster officer. He had to be his own planner. His, the strategy and tactics that evolved during the war are Washington's. And so he starts with this idea given to him. You know, Congress tells him, go fight the British and drive them out of America. Well, all right. How do you do that? Well, by a general action. General action. Today we would consider that a major battle or a decisive battle. Uh, early on, uh, for example, at Bunker Hill, the Americans in a very uh, strong defensive position 
are able to defeat the British. The fact that they outnumbered the British, the fact that they had good defensive positions, and the fact that the British grossly underestimated the, the, the colonists and the militia troops' ability to fight helps. Uh, from that, some Americans thought that the way to fight was to fight a war of post of posts, establish strong defensive positions and invite the enemy to come to you. And initially, Washington will gravitate toward that strategy. But what he will find over time is that's not going to work because the British are going to learn how to deal with those posts and very quickly how to overcome them. And Washington's been told by Congress to defend New York City, which results in a series of very, very catastrophic defeats. As, as the British are able to maneuver around and get at those posts. And Washington loses Fort Washington right there uh, uh, in, in New York City. And over time, he's come to see that this, this war of posts is a loser, that this idea of a general action is probably not going to work very well either, because uh, in a general action, militia don't stand up well against regular troops. And, and Washington begins to change his views. And, he's, and, and the views change in this way. He says, militia alone are not going to be able to stand up to, to regular, British regulars. And so we need our own regulars. We need a, a continental army, a professional army. This idea is going to be one that will spin its way down through American history. A tension between the reliance on militia troops as opposed to uh, professional troops. And what's going to evolve as we take a look at the evolution of American history, it's a blend of those two, which are effective during Washington's time and which will become effective down through the ages. Although there will be professional soldiers down through the ages who will push back against that idea. When does Washington come to understand that the army is the real expression, the only expression at that time of the nation, right? This is the only national institution, the only expression of nationhood that, that the United States has. So it has this powerful symbolic meaning. I think he comes at some point to sort of understand that as long as we have the army, and this is to your point about how his strategy evolves from, in some sense, seeking a decisive general action to avoiding a decisive general action, right? Because as long as we have an army, We've got a nation. It's between 1775 and 1776. There's two great books uh, that I would recommend. One is David Hackett Fisher's uh, Washington's Crossing and John Furling, who has a book called Almost a Miracle. And uh, Washington's Crossing has to do with that, that th those two events starts with, with Trenton and then Princeton, where, where Washington is sort of moving to a new way of fighting uh, not going for the general engagement, but striking a, a weaker opponent. His whole idea of the strategy changes, that we're, we're not going to try to win this through some sort of decisive action or general action. We're going to win a protracted war. We're going to win by not losing. This Fabian strategy, based on the old Roman strategy of, of not fighting Hannibal, but, but, but containing Hannibal, and then exhausting and win a protracted war. Which incidentally is what the Vietnamese did to us and what the Taliban is doing to us, right? I mean, do they read American history? Have they read about Washington? That gives rise to that old saying about <laughs> confound those ancients, they've stolen all the best ideas. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that go around that we, we learn and then we have to relearn and relearn in each subsequent generation. And sometimes we, we take past lessons and we, we turn our back on them. But the second of the two books, John Furling's book, Almost a Miracle, when, when Furling lays out the, the, the American Revolution and, and Washington's role in all of that, he, he really 
zeroes in on this idea that the the the, um, the American colonists are playing a losing game with a losing hand unless they have unless they change and that that they do grow and they do learn and they do make changes they do adapt washington comes to the conclusion i do need a professional army this is not an, an idea that goes down easy it had after all been the british regulars who had oppressed the colonists mm -hmm. and this whole idea that in the european system armies were used as much against their own people as they were against others but what washington comes to realize I need troops who will stand and, and deliver under fire. And, and with him, that comes this idea of regulars. And it's at Valley Forge and, and through the assistance of Baron von Steuben that the American Continental Army begins to grow and begins to come into its own. And now, that doesn't mean that throughout the war, the rest of the war, that the militia is not important because it is. It's very important. It plays a... It, plays a role in supporting the effort at Saratoga. It plays a role at Calpins in the South mm -hmm. uh, as the war shifted from the North to the South through the colonies. But it, it is this idea that when the decisive moment comes, if a decisive moment comes, there needs to be regular forces. This idea is reinforced by the fact that uh, toward the end of the war, when uh, Washington finally, thanks to Rochambeau and the French Navy, are able to bring Cornwallis to bay at Yorktown. If you go to Yorktown today and look at the monument at Yorktown, on that monument you, you have an homage to the French for their help, you have an homage to the Virginia militia for their effort, and then finally a recognition of the Continental Army's contribution in that. It took that combination of things to be successful. And it's Washington who is slowly coming to realize that what I've got to do is pull all of those threads together to apply force. And that's, it, when we think about Washington's generalship, wh what he is doing is he is pulling together those threads and weaving them into a strong cord that he can then use to lash his opponents. That, that's what he's trying to get to. And he's smart enough to be able to do it. So during the war, much of the United States is under a British occupation. I mean, obviously it's a revolutionary war, so they sort of term occupation might not exactly fit, but the British take Boston, they take New York, they take Philadelphia, they take Charleston. I mean, pretty much every American city at some point is, is, is falling to the British. So how is Washington convincing the political leadership of the country that this is a good idea? Because I imagine he's getting a lot of what's going on, you know, we're not winning. This doesn't feel like winning. Absolutely. The Continental Congress is apoplectic about the fact that, that the countryside, the cities, are, are falling under the sway of the British. And they're driving Washington. John Adams, especially, uh, was among the fire breathers who, who wanted to go out and confront the British. And, and Washington, who having had the experience of confronting the British directly, realizes that is a losing strategy. And, and so one of the things he resolves to do is he will not put his force at risk. Now, Having said that, he also realizes I cannot allow the countryside, the cities, to fall under the, the, the sway of the British. And so, I, I, so what I've got to do is pick up the low-hanging fruit. What I've got to do is I've got to create conditions so that I will get the British to withdraw from one area, to concentrate their troops in an area that will then unburden another area. And he does this through various stratagems, not the least of which is intelligence. Washington goes to work on a system of spies and intelligence gathering that, that is designed to create uh, the impression that he will be in one place or another place and thereby cause the British to 
to relocate their forces. And in the process of relocating their forces, it's an easy win because the, a, a city that had been oppressed is now free. So, for example, when Washington gets ready to march down to Yorktown, the British are up in New York and they're, they're, they're threatening Philadelphia and, and, and Boston and the places in the Northeast. And so in order to be able to slip away and get to the South, Washington allows, it's that, uh, it's that thing that, uh, that Sun Tzu warns about, you know, beware of the proffered bait. You know, beware of that, uh, that piece of intelligence that falls into your lap. It's the, it's the lost dispatch of later generations. Washington allows uh, uh, information to get to the British that says Washington is going to be threatening New York. And so the British commander holds his forces in New York instead of marching. Is that Clinton at that time? Yes, yeah. instead of marching south to, to aid Cornwallis. And so while Rochambeau moves the fleet down to be off the, the coast, Washington is able to move overland. And, and bring Cornwallis to bay. How did Washington think about the war in terms of other, what we call in the military today, domains of warfare? So really, I guess at that time, there's obviously no air power, but you have the, this, the sea playing a significant role at Yorktown. So the, the French are essential. The French Navy is essential for hemming Cornwallis in. Does Washington have a kind of multi-domain strategy? Yes. and. The domains, the two that matter the most in this particular case, are allies and, and navy, two, two, two things that are going to be essential to the outcome. And that's why when we have this course, Ride with Great Captains, what we encourage the students to do is to try to get in the mind of the great captain that they're studying. And one way to do that is through good biography. Uh, and if you take Washington as an example, there are countless volumes of of uh, good history and bad history, bad biography written about Washington. So uh, the place I, I encourage students to go is correspondence. Read what they're writing because if you, if you go to correspondence, which is sort of the most basic primary source, when, when page on the left side is written, page on the right side is blank. And so the future is unknown. And, and you can see how the mind works. You can see doubt. You can see... Uh, uh, the evolution of ideas, and, and Washington provides uh, a, an ample body of correspondence. Now, the tricky thing is when you're trying to get inside a general's head, if you're reading only correspondence and you don't have the larger context, a, a lot of it is so granular, it's, it's not going to be useful to you. So I wouldn't encourage anybody who would seek to understand Washington to start with correspondence as a, as a point of departure. I would suggest you start with good biography. And, you know, when, when we talk about biography in, in Washington, the, there are uh, countless books written. Some are absolutely worthless. When the first biographies are written about uh, Washington, they're, they're, it's pure hagiography. It's just worshipful biography. And it's not until you get to the revisionist stuff and some of the hard uh, critical examination that you begin to get better insights into Washington, because as that correspondence is used and analyzed, we begin to see how Washington's mind evolves. And, and what really comes through clearly is how Washington's approach to strategy changes over time. In the beginning, he's very much in favor of direct big actions, general actions against the, the British, and he, and he seeks to win outright. And over time, he's completely changed. We just have to not lose. We have to not lose. Yeah. We, we have to be strong. And, and, we have, to, we have to get allies. And, and, of course, the obvious ally is the French because the French and the British are locked in this struggle uh, for domination in Western Europe. 
and and it is success on the battlefield. It's success at places like uh, Saratoga, uh, uh, Germantown, that leads the, the French to believe, you know, this, the, the, these Americans might be worth backing because it's a low-cost way to, to wound the British. And so, so Washington actively cultivates this idea, we need to get these allies. And then at the same time, he's very clear, writing to his subordinates, about how you should not take unnecessary risks, but do not miss the opportunity to wound mm-hmm. or to insult, he uses that term, insult the British if you can. So he discusses his strategy. It's not just I'm making this this up or, or people like uh, David Hackett Fisher or John Furling or others, Fleming, Thomas Fleming, are, are ascribing to Washington thoughts that he didn't have. They use those thoughts, they pull them out, and they say, look what he's writing and how that that writing shows the evolution of his thinking. And, and this is an important thing, you, you get to understand over time that, that the future is not clear, that, that Washington ultimately believes he can be successful, but there are doubts. Yeah. And those doubts weigh heavily on people who, have that, who bear that ultimate responsibility. When we look back at history, it's, it's often hard for us to see events from the perspective of someone inhabiting the time, because we know the outcome. That's right. We see the American Revolution is is somehow an inevitability. The revolution itself is an inevitability, and the outcome also as somehow inevitable. And it seems pretty clear that for the major participants, that there wasn't a lot of clarity about how this was going to end. Washington did, to your point, seem to have great insight about the British weakness strategically which was they just didn't have sufficient forces to hold everything simultaneously at all times. And they counted on uh, the Americans, the American loyalists actually being able to do more to influence the political situation more than they did. Did Washington have a kind of political philosophy or a political element of, of his strategy with respect to the loyalist issue, right? Because that's that's where the British really kind of screwed up ultimately is that they counted on the loyalists when they would leave an area maintaining their presence and influence. And that didn't really happen in many places. Washington had served many years in the House of Burgesses in Virginia. And, and so politically, he was aware. He had listened to the political rhetoric of, of Patrick Henry and, and the other uh, strong advocates for American independence, and, and he had a political philosophy, and that was that America had grown apart from the from the motherland and was prepared to go its own way. But but Washington, at his heart, was an Englishman. Yeah, and he had this great loyalty to England. But he but he was he had able served to, in the uniform, right? He'd served he'd served the crown. Yeah, but he in his own mind had come to the conclusion that that America was sufficiently different for many reasons, and it was capable of going its own way. Now, you're absolutely right. There was a large uh, body of of loyalists, Tories, who were uh, supportive of the crown. Uh, Some of his own generals turned sides in the middle of the war, Benedict Arnold very famously. Uh, Charles Lee was another one who was of questionable Mm -hmm. uh, virtue uh, or, or loyalty. But Washington ultimately had this idea that, yes, there was probably a political future for the United for, for the colonies, for the United Colonies. W- were they willing to go that way? 
But he does have his doubts about the success of the cause because of that, of that group who were loyal. And, and the question was whether or not there was sufficient energy and commitment on the side of those colonists who wanted independence to stick with it. You know, the Continental Congress really had no way of raising a lot of money to support the effort. And so it, Washington was always living hand to mouth. And when he gets to... Uh, Never has enough troops, right? No. Doesn't, doesn't have them for long enough because their enlistments tend to be these short duration enlistments. He's managing shortages throughout yeah. the war. And, and we, we, understand, we come to understand the depth of Washington's commitment to the cause at Valley Forge in the winter when, when the army is basically near starvation. And Washington basically, who's sharing the hardships with his troops, says to, makes it known to the troops that he, he, if necessary, will support the army with his own personal fortune if that be necessary. And that's sort of, I'm in this, we're all in yeah. here. You know, we're, I'm committing to this thing uh, wholly, and I'm, I'm asking you to do the same. The, the remarkable thing is, is that he is able to tap into a, a feeling, a commitment, a, a patriotism that he is able to draw out of that colonial army. I was going to say, I mean, he, he elicits, he instills it and elicits it, right? Because it's not, there is no nation yet, really. I mean, so this idea of patriotism, allegiance to what, right? To, to, and, and the other thing, you know, when we were chatting before we sat down here together, you talked about uh, Washington's incredible influence after the war in, in setting the tone for America as a nation that would not be ruled by the military, that would not be ruled by great generals. I mean, we've had some great generals elected president, Washington, of course, first of all. But to, to create this uh, incredible example, George III famously observed that if, when he was told that Washington wasn't just going to take over at the end of the war, he said, well, that would make him the greatest man in history or something, something to that effect. So after the victory at, at Yorktown, when the army is uh, up around Newburgh, New York, in, in winter quarters, and we're waiting for the Treaty of Paris, we're waiting for some sort of political settlement to be made with Great Britain. The fighting has sort of gone into uh, a, a hiatus, and the army's not being paid, and the senior leaders in the army are not being paid. And they're at this little log cabin in this campment around Newburgh, and Washington gets wind of the fact that his officers, his senior officers, are talking about taking the army and marching on the Continental Congress to demand payment, to wring it from their pockets if necessary. Mutiny. And so Washington, it's very difficult to talk about this. I feel very emotional about it because it, it really speaks to Washington's views of his respect for civil authority. Washington will go into this. He, he finds out where the meeting's being held. And unannounced comes to the meeting, and there's great quiet. Washington walks to the head of the table and pulls from his pocket a, a piece of paper, which he starts to read that basically says, we are the Continental Army, we serve Congress, we're loyal, etc. And then he stops, and he reaches into his pocket and puts on glasses. His generals had never seen him wear those glasses. He, he only, only used them in private. It was a personal vanity for him. But he puts on the glasses and he says, pardon me, but 
My eyes have grown dim in the service of my country. It was such a powerful moment. I'm sorry. You know, I'm so emotional about it because it is the embodiment of respect for civil authority. And that's what Washington is able to convey, not only to the men who sat around that table, squelching the mutiny, but down through the ages, in the American military, respect for civil authority is a bedrock virtue. 